Well, Merry Christmas. (laughs) What is going on? We're in Matthew chapter 2 this morning, aren't we? Matthew chapter 2. And let me remind you that this first book in our New Testament is a field manual of sorts for God's people. It was for its first readers, the early church, mostly Jewish Christians, commissioned to proclaim the gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus to their neighbors and to the nations. And it is still our commission to do so, isn't it? And Matthew's gospel remains today a field manual of sorts for the kingdom. Matthew is the book of the kingdom. It's for kingdom people. Are you a kingdom person? Who is the king? The king is Jesus, says Matthew 1. Son of David, son of Abraham. He is the Jewish king, yet he is the son of man. God himself born into humanity into the world he created. Come to save that which is lost. Come to to give his life a ransom for many. How many? Well, Jesus is Savior and King for all his people throughout all human history, throughout the entire world. What What a king is our Jesus. Where is his kingdom? Well, the kingdom of heaven isn't up there only. The kingdom of heaven is here because heaven's king has come here. Repent, says the king, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is present everywhere. The king rules and reigns as king. Is he the king ruling and reigning in your life? Can can you see the kingdom? If the kingdom is here, how do you know where it is? Well, says Matthew, the king has shown his people the way of the kingdom. You are the salt of the earth, says our king. You are the light of the world. Kingdom people are noticed as those who live as light in darkness. Salt that seasons their relationships with godliness. Preserving what is good in God's world for God's glory. Go and make disciples, says the king. That's what he's done with his authority. The king has all authority in heaven and on the earth. Amen. And with his authority, he says to his people, go and make disciples. Wherever kingdom people go, they're used of God to raise up more followers of Jesus in the power of the Spirit. How else might kingdom people be recognized? Because they don't wear name tags. Kingdom people are happy and hopeful people, says Matthew. Because the king is coming again in power to judge the unrepentant. 
and he's coming again in power to reward his loyal people and to establish his kingdom with finality on the earth forever. One day the king will say to his people, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now why do I mention all of this? Because here we are on Memorial Day weekend and we're about to read of Bethlehem and the wise men and the star. And Mary and Joseph and the Christ child, and it's not even December. I thought we only read this stuff in December. We're about as far away from Christmas on the calendar as we can get. Well, remember, Matthew's gospel is a field manual for kingdom people. And so Matthew, too, gives us so much more than a Christmas narrative, if you will. He is giving us a lasting description of this world's primary responses to the king. Let me just suggest to you a couple of implications for that. You will find yourself described in Matthew 2. I read ahead. And you will see these responses to Jesus you who are kingdom people, as you proclaim his gospel, as you live as salt and light in his world. So let's just, don't take my word for it. Let's just see if this is so. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. You've had plenty of time to find it by now, right? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warmed in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. What, What a gospel this is. 
Think of what Matthew has told us so far in these opening chapters. Yahweh's anointed king, his Christ, God the Son, is now enclosed in humanity. There is now a human, a man, though still a child, who is God on planet Earth. And he's come to save his people from their sins. He's come to rescue his people from sin's penalty. That's hell. He's come to rescue his people from sin's power. That's sin dominating your life. He's come to bring his people home to himself. He's come to enable his people to live life one day absent even the fragrance of sin's curse. What a king is our Jesus. And yet this good news of the king and his kingdom is met with anger by lesser kings like Herod. Why? I mean, what's to be mad about, really? Who is this Herod, and what is his problem? Herod is not sort of angry, is he? He's he's desperately angry. I mean, he's scheming angry. And we need to know why he's angry, because, listen, the good news of the king is met with anger yet today. Don't be surprised by this, church. Don't don't be scandalized by this. Read the field manual. It's always been this way. This angry response to the good news of the king. In fact, if you've not met anger in response to the gospel, it's very possible you're not speaking or living the gospel. So prevalent is the angry response among some. Upon hearing news of the king and the implications of who he is and what he's come to do. This Herod, who is named in Matthew 2, is is, is the one known to history as Herod the Great. And there are are many Herods in ancient history. They, They sort of spread like a bad rash throughout uh, Palestine, um, but by by many measures, this particular Herod really was great. The scenery of much of our New Testament includes building projects that this Herod organized and saw through. He, he was an amazing engineer, an amazing builder. In fact, his renovation of the the second temple um, was, was such a marvel that historians still refer to that as Herod's temple today, though as, as, as most of you know, that temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. But it was quite a marvel. Herod built the port city of Caesarea up in, in Galilee, the remains of which are, are there still today. Created the harbor, really, that is there in Caesarea, 
Herod was also an effective administrator. He was really good at collecting taxes, and that mattered to Rome a lot. But Herod the Great was also known for his great jealousy and his hostility toward anything or anyone who threatened his position. His lust for power and position made him a pathetically paranoid ruler. He murdered his wife, had ten wives, he murdered one of them. Murdered his mother-in-law, murdered three of his own sons. Near the end of the life, end of his life, he knew there would be no mourning in Jerusalem for him, and so he ordered many of the distinguished citizens of Jerusalem to be jailed and then killed upon his death so that there would at least be crying in Jerusalem when he died. And that monstrosity, as you know, is surpassed by what we will read later in Matthew 2, the slaughter of children in a desperate plea to find this rival king, this Jesus, and snuff him out. It's to this ruthless ruler, Herod, that the the, the wise men come to inquire about the Messiah. And I want you to notice in verse 3 that Herod's first response is that he's, he's troubled. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. He's agitated. He's all stirred up with anger. His sense of security and his sense of control is shaken to the core by news that the rightful king to Israel's throne has been born. Herod knows he is not the rightful king. He's not even a Jew. He's an Edomite from east of the Jordan River, south of Jerusalem. He's a puppet king installed there by Rome. And so his response to a son of David, son of Abraham being born, is one of panicked anger. And you've got to wonder why. It's because the king's arrival threatens the power and the control of all who would rule themselves. Do you think that doesn't still happen today? Because the gospel rightly understood is that a king has come, and he's come to save And he's come to rule. And that means those who insist on ruling themselves have a problem. Herod has a problem. And it makes him angry. Why do people respond in anger to the gospel today? Some of us have this in our own families, don't we? We experience this in the community. We don't have to go searching for this, it's not hypothetical. It's not over there someplace. It's, it's right here among us. Why? Well, it's because most people today don't think they need to be saved. And those who will allow their need to be saved certainly don't want to be ruled by another. The world is still saying today, as it did in Jesus' day, we will not have this man rule over us. Notice that still in in verse 3, all Jerusalem is troubled. What's Matthew telling us? Is the whole city's mad? Well, no, not not quite. 
It's just that you've heard this expression, I think, you know, if, um, think about this in your home. If, if mom isn't happy, then, okay, so we understand that principle. Herod's not happy, and that's bad for anybody in Jerusalem. It's bad for anybody in Palestine. Herod the Great's hostility means that great hostility will be directed toward God's people in the city of David and in Judea. It's a a precursor to what happens throughout church history. And it explains what we experience yet today. When the king's enemies are those who hold earthly power and influence, tribulation comes to his people. And Matthew is saying in his field manual for kingdom people, don't be surprised by this. Don't think that God has somehow taken his hand off the wheel here. For now, this is the way of the kingdom. This is the experience of kingdom people living in a world opposed to the king. Notice how cunning this hostility toward Christ can be. Verse 4, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. These chief priests and scribes, as, as most of you know, were the authorities in the land when it came to the word of God. These are Bible people, religious people, churchy people. But, but they were quite secular. Can you imagine what that might be like? Bible people who are nonetheless really worldly people, secular in that sense. John MacArthur points out in his commentary that the, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin um, was little more than a corrupt group of religiously oriented politicians. So they're, they're the movers and shakers of the community, for sure, politically powerful, religiously respected, um, valued for their opinions. They know the Bible really well. Look at verse 5. So they said to him, we, we know exactly the answer to your question. In Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They knew the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. They knew the Messiah has come to rule, uh, an absolute sovereign. They knew the Messiah, the king, would lead God's people like a shepherd cares for his sheep. But notice how they respond to what they know. Because I'm going to ask you to think about how you respond to what you know. Not a single one of them accompanies the wise men to Bethlehem. Isn't that interesting? These guys are so steeped in Scripture. They're so familiar with the prophecies concerning the coming of the king. Where it's going to happen, what he's come to do, how, it, how it's all going to go down. They're so religious that when they finally hear that a child has been born in the exact place the scripture says the child will be born, how many of them go to check it out? 
Zero. Zero. They are completely apathetic about the king's arrival. Here are people preoccupied with religion about the king, but they've no affection for the king. They're too busy pursuing religious activity about God to actually pursue God and live for God themselves. Why do we need to know this, Matthew? Why, 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 why did this make the cut in this field manual for the kingdom? Because the good news of the king is met with apathy still today. Don't be surprised by that. Don't think that if you just talk louder, more people will believe. You know how you do that with someone who doesn't speak your language? <laughs> Why do we do that? It's not to do with that. It's to do with the heart. Many find it easier to have a religion about Jesus than to actually believe in and follow after Jesus. I personally have a sense that it is, it is far too common in our part of the world for churches to agree that the word of God is inerrant. We, we believe that, do we not? This is the very word of God. And yet, lead people to go right on thinking and living in ways that are contrary to the word of God. This is not a, a rare thing to see in Christian culture today. People carrying their Bibles around saying great things about the inerrancy of Scripture, the very Word of God. Oh, you're going to live the way it tells you to live? Well, not so much. Refusing to call sin what the Bible calls sin, does that happen among church people today? I was reading in uh, the news, one of the denominations in our country um, covering up for Decades, apparently, victims of abuse throughout the denomination. And you say, oh, that, that's the Catholic thing. No, this is Protestant people, as if that matters. Ignoring God-given role distinctions in, in marriage and in families. Who does that? Some church people do that. And that sort of thing plays well with those who are apathetic toward the king. How many people today do you suppose come to church and do the church thing and feel good about their religion don't care much at all about Christ? They're just clocking in. It feels good to be religious. So much the better to feel religious and look religious in front of others than to be truly saved and truly follow the king. Do you see why salvation must be a work of God? Why it must be a miraculous work of the Spirit of God in the heart of sinful men and women like us? 
But Matthew says to the early church and, and the Holy Spirit says to the church still today, the apathetic are those who prefer to feel spiritual and look religious rather than repent and be ruled by the king. Don't be surprised by that. This is your mission field. Matthew was showing us then that the last thing these religious people wanted was for the king they pretended to love and look for to actually show up and reorder their lives. Do you realize that the gospel rightly understood, rightly proclaimed, is a claim on your life? I pray that God will give grace among us here that there are not hearts in such a state. But, but let me just say to you, friend, if you are persuaded that you've had that angry response to the gospel, you've had that apathetic response to the king, and you wonder now whether he'll have you, let me just say, he will. Repent. The king has come. And, and he's come for you. He's come for all of his people. Verse 6 is a quotation from the Old Testament prophecy of Micah 2. But I want you to notice with me that there's a very important difference. My, Micah 5.2 says this, But you... Uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You notice if you stare at verse 6 of Matthew 2 in your Bible, there's a difference there. The chief priests and the scribes know their Bible so well that they add this bit about the ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. They're quoting now from 2 Samuel 5.2. The Messiah, the, the son of David, is a ruler who will shepherd his people. Jesus, then, is the one who comes not only in sovereign authority, but, but he's the one who comes in tender care. Now, why would, why would the chief priests and scribes be offended by that? Well, because they're supposed to be shepherding God's people. And they couldn't care less about God's people. How apathetic are they? Well, they're, they're so apathetic that they're not even going to see if their own answer to the wise men's question, or, or Herod's question, is accurate. And that is why, at some point, Matthew is going to show us that these apathetic people become angry people. And we should not be surprised to see that happening in the world around us today. Do you think that's happening to the church in America today? Uh, people who used to say, eh, you guys go ahead with your Jesus stuff. That's fine. As long as we all have our own truth, and as long as our truth is relative to us, as long as it's true for you, haven't you noticed that that's increasingly not the vibe anymore? Now the vibe is what? Well, you Jesus people are kind of a problem. In fact, you Jesus people 
are a problem that needs to get dealt with. And so many of God's people look at that happening today and think, all is lost. What has happened? Why do we react that way? Because we're not reading the field manual, that's why. It's always been that way. Those who are apathetic toward the king eventually become angry toward the king and his kingdom. How many of us, listen, have seen this heartbreak in our own families? Brothers and sisters and, and, and parents and, and children, mostly indifferent to Jesus until his claims are rightly understood. He's come to rule. He's come to reign. And the once apathetic are now angry and rebellious. So apathy turns to anger. Listen, young people, those of you who are not married yet, and, and you think the Lord may bless you with marriage in your future, this is why the scripture says to you, listen, what, what fellowship has light with darkness? So you don't want to be, are you still listening? You don't want to be that young lady in, who, who says, well, he, you know, he's, he's not a Christian, but he, he's totally fine with me being a Christian. In fact, he doesn't even care. He's, he's good with that. He's good with that until you're together and he realizes you're going to start living for the king. And now you've got a problem. Don't be that young man. So smitten by, oh, she's beautiful. Of course she's beautiful. She's been made in the image of God. Now she's not a believer, really. I mean, her parents are. Doesn't really seem like she is. But she's okay with me being one of those Jesus people. Listen. How many of us know from our own family experiences that the apathetic soon turn to the angry when the king's mission is rightly understood and lived out. And again, I pray we don't fall into these first two categories, responding to the good news of the king with anger, responding to the good news of the king with apathy. But, but, but again, if you're here today and, you, and your conscience is all troubled, <laughs> be encouraged. Because today you can turn to the king. The king who has come as a sovereign ruler has come as a tender shepherd and he'll have you if you'll surrender to him today. Turn to the king. You say, well, why, why do you preach like this? We're all church people, and we've all showered, and we've come to church on a Sunday. Surely church people don't need to hear the gospel. Well, there are those whose hearts burn with affection for our Jesus, aren't there? Look at verse 1. I know we're going out of order, but just, just, just maybe deal with that. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. What a, what a shameful embarrassment this would have been to Matthew's first readers. Jewish Christians 
And the only people who get it right so far are not Jewish. They're not even from the land of promise. Here are Gentiles living far outside the land, used of God to shame those who believed they were God's people because they're religious and they've got the right ancestry. And we really don't know much about these, these, these men, uh, these magi, though you could fill a library with what has been written about them. And let me just say, most of it is, is really, really interesting, and, it, and it's educated conjecture. Uh, some of it is just pure fantasy, the fact that we know their names and all of this sort of thing. Um, do you know what we know? We know what Matthew has told us. That's what we know. We, we know that they're from the east, okay? Now, there was a group called Magi in ancient Persia. In fact, the, the, the word Magi uh, comes from a, a Persian word translated into Greek. We get the word magician from that, as you might imagine. And, and, and we read about Magi in the book of Daniel. It's very possible that, that Daniel taught the ancestors of these wise men that we're reading of in Matthew 2. These magi were learned men. They they were wealthy, influential people uh, who also sought God's Messiah. They know the scriptures. They know what they've been taught. They're God-fearers, or what what in our vernacular we might say seekers, right? Right? Verse 2 says, where, they, they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. What a curious expression that is. His star. Do you know it's perfectly normal to read stuff like that in your Bible and stop and say, I w- wonder why that's there. Why, why is it called his star? That's just strange. Well, there was an ancient prophecy by a fellow by the name of Balaam. And, and, and Balaam was, um, was kind of a mixed up guy because he, he, was, he was paid by the king of Moab to curse the Israelites. And yet God moves this prophet to pronounce blessings on God's people. Listen to the blessing. He'd, he'd given a prophecy, Balaam had, of a coming king of Israel. And he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. So so here are these wise men, these magi, God-fearers, steeped in Old Testament prophecy as they are, following the promptings of the Spirit of God when they see his star. The, the, the anointed one's star shining in the night sky above their homeland. And so off to Bethlehem they go. You just have to marvel at what happens to people whose hearts are filled with adoration for the king. What a contact, contrast in greatness. You know that word uh, magos or magi means great? Think of the contrast in greatness here. There's Herod the Great, 
who's um, great in his opposition to the king, or, or maybe you could say he's great in his own eyes, right? And here are Gentiles who are great by God's measure because they believe this child really is who the scriptures say he is. He is the king of all kings born in Bethlehem. Think about this. The, the, the Magi have far less Bible knowledge than the, than the chief priests and scribes. If, if, if there were an Awana scripture reading memorization contest, these, these three Magi wouldn't win it. But what they knew, they believed and followed. And I wonder if there are any here today thinking, you know, I just don't think I know enough yet. I don't know as much as these folks who have been going to that building with a cross on it all their lives. Some of them act like they were born in it. Let me encourage you, friend. Will you not act on what you do know? Do you not believe what you know about this Jesus? Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. From their sins. Do you believe that? And will you not follow this Jesus? Well, there's so much I don't know yet. Me too. I'm in the same boat. The older I live, the more I realize I don't know. And you know, the the good news of the kingdom, friends, is, is met still with adoration today. Please don't forget that as you're out in the community speaking of Jesus? Do you speak of Jesus? Do we believe as we speak of Jesus that God is actually saving people? Sure we do. What's the response of those whom God saves? They adore the king. We have come to worship him, they exclaimed. They're neither ashamed nor secretive in their adoration of Christ. They are not cowardly in their allegiance to Christ. True adoration toward Christ is shameless, and it's public, and it's courageous. Why? Because it's a work of the Spirit of God. Think about it. It would take some spine, wouldn't it? To go strolling into Jerusalem and come up to Herod the Great who fancies himself the king and say right to his face, hey, we're looking for the king. The the implication is what? It ain't you. No, the, the real king has been born to his people. God promised that in the Bible you pretend to revere, Herod. Where's the king? Notice what else marks those who live in allegiance to the king in verse 10. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. The the, the wise men didn't follow the star all the way from Persia, from the east. They they see the star. They know to go to Bethlehem. But now they're in Bethlehem, and what are they going to do? God shows them once again where they're to go. 
exactly where the Christ child is. And, and they don't just rejoice. Matthew says they rejoiced with joy. And it wasn't just joy. It was exceeding joy. Uh, it was exceeding great joy was their rejoicing. Do you think they were happy? Do, do you think they were excited? Those who live in allegiance to the king do so joyfully. This is not a, a forced allegiance kind of thing. This is a willing, glad allegiance. A, a happy adoration, if you will. How can we not rejoice that our king has come to take away our sins? How can we not rejoice that our king has come to defeat sin in our own lives in real time? We're not the same today as we were the day we met him. How can we not rejoice that our king is coming again? That our future is an eternal life, ruling with him in a kingdom of righteousness. Do you see why God's people are a happy and a hopeful people? Verse 11, and when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Notice that they do not worship Mary. They don't worship Joseph. They don't worship the star. And they don't say, hey, I heard there were angels involved in this thing. Where are the angels? We want to worship the angels. Now they, they've come to worship the king. They've, they've come to worship Jesus. And Jesus alone, that they've traveled hundreds, if not thousands of miles, just, just for this purpose. Let me ask you something. Have, have you been brought to a place in your heart whereby you can worship him? Not just know about him. Not just understand that he's got a claim on the throne of your heart. You were created to be ruled by another, not yourself. Matthew's use of this word worship implies a reverent response to deity. These guys adore the king. You might be wondering why I suggested that we read a little bit of Psalm 72 and a little bit of Isaiah 60 this past week to prepare our hearts for this morning. I don't know if anybody did that or not, um, but if you did, you were treated to a reminder yet again from Scripture that Yahweh, God himself, has sent his anointed king in precisely the manner he said he would do so. Do you, th do you think we can trust our Bible? But Isaiah prophesied what we just read in Matthew 2 hundreds of years before it happened. Those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. <laughs> Why do they come to bring such gifts? Well, Isaiah's prophecy itself is an echo of Solomon's own prophecy in Psalm 72, Solomon says what? His name shall endure forever, this king. Who, who's he talking about? Well, he's not talking about himself. 
He's talking about David's greater son. His name shall continue as long as the son and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. You see, those who adore the king gladly acknowledge his lordship and desire to worship him. That's the vibe of God's people today. Not mere religion. Most people on the planet are religious people in some sense. Those who adore the king acknowledge his lordship and desire to worship him. Let me, let me just end where we began. I mentioned when we started, you'd find yourself described in this early part of the kingdom's field manual. And I wonder if that's right. (laughs) Is it true that everybody in this room in some fashion is described by these three different types of people? Some angered. I've heard that so many times, I'm tired of hearing about it. Some apathetic. But I see a lot of people who are God's people who adore the king. So why do we need to know this stuff from Matthew 2? Is it so we can judge the validity of the pictures on our Christmas cards? No. It's so that we'll know that as kingdom people, it will be really common for us to run into hostility as we proclaim Christ. As we live as salt and light in the world, there's going to be pushback. Don't be, don't be knocked off kilter by that. It's always been that way. And as we live as kingdom people, we're going to be met within maybe even our own families. I pray this isn't so, but so often it is. Apathy to the king. Apathy that turns to anger once the king's claims are really known. And yet the scriptures tell us what? The kingdom prevails. Those who adore the king need not be knocked off track by the angry and the apathetic. Look at verse 12. That Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Okay, so you're mad. Okay, so you're apathetic. We will serve the king where he leads us to go. We want that to be our vibe, don't we? We, we want that to be the tune that we march to. So here, here, here is the, the thought that we can close with from Matthew 2, 1 through 12. All people at some point must decide what to do with Jesus. That's what Matthew is showing us. Because one day Jesus will decide what to do with all people. He's the king. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we thank you that you did come down from heaven. Humbly, you came to save us.
Lord, thank you for reminding us from your word just now. Not only the condition of hearts in this room, but Lord, what we might expect as your kingdom people as we live for you and preach your gospel. Lord, find us faithful. Lord, I thank you so much that the, the salient thing isn't so much all that we know, but believing and acting on what we do know, what you've shown us from your word. So Lord, I pray that you would do that kind of work in us, Lord. Shape us evermore into your kingdom people. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name, amen.